This is Africa Digest. Seventeen oh one Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za as well as on Channel Eight Hundred Two on the DSTV audio bouquet. A little bit later on this evening. My name is Samora Magesi and I'm in studio with Tracy Boomgard as well as Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or in short, OSHA, says it has reached an agreement with the Ethiopian government to enter Mekele. Ghana is today heading to the polls for the country's new leader with incumbent. A new report by the International Labour Organization has found that monthly wages fell or grew more slowly in the first six months of 2020. Right now, though, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's Onelin Sinze with your latest bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. Ghanaians are casting their votes in what is expected to be a close race between President Nana Akufo-Addo and his main rival, John Mahama. Commentators say Akufo-Addo has a slight lead based on his performance during the pandemic in which his administration provided free water and subsidized electricity to households. The two sides agreed on Friday to resolve any electoral disputes in court after fears that unofficial security groups hired by politicians could disrupt the vote. Voting appeared to be going smoothly by Monday afternoon with no reports of significant disruption. Liberians are expected to head to the polls on Tuesday to vote in a referendum and at the same time elect 15 new senators. This is an election that appears to have split the nation between the ruling coalition for democratic change and the opposition collaborating political parties. Over 2 million registered voters are expected to turn out. Voters voters will be deciding on eight prepositions. Each of the prepositions is intended to amend different articles within the country's 1986 constitution. Former Namibian President Sam Nojoma has been hospitalized after testing positive for coronavirus. The 91-year-old is said to be in a stable condition and receiving treatment in hospital. He was admitted on Sunday and is apparently already showing signs of improvement. President Hegen Gob says Namibians and the rest of the world should not worry as there isn't any cause of concern. He says regular updates on Najumo's condition will be released until his recovery. 
United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says it has reached an agreement with the Ethiopian government to enter Mekele, the capital of Tigray region, to deliver urgently needed humanitarian supplies to more than 100,000 Eritreans, refugees at four refugee camps. This is following nearly five weeks of fighting between federal and regional forces. World Health Organization spokesperson Darik Yasseravik. There are still operational issues of a logistical nature, some of them of a security nature, that are being worked out so that we can proceed with the mission. So everyone, of course, are working full speed to make that happen. UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, stands ready to resume its full humanitarian activities in the Tigray region as soon as the situation allows, following an agreement to restore access. In the Shire in Tigray, UNICEAR staff in the town, together with our partners, have already distributed water, high-energy biscuits, clothes, mattresses, sleeping mats, and blankets. Lastly, officials in India are still battling to determine the cause of a mystery illness as the number of those infected continues to rise substantially. Authorities in the country's southern state of Dara Pradesh say the patients have a wide range of symptoms from nausea to fits and unconsciousness. COVID-19 is not suspected to be the cause as all patients so far have tested negative for the virus. Many recover quickly from the symptoms. However, one man has died and hundreds others remain in hospital. The BBC's Jill McGivery. So far, the authorities seem baffled. Some report fits similar to epilepsy, even a loss of consciousness. Others report vomiting or frothing at the mouth. Nearly 50 children are affected, although most patients are aged between 20 and 40. Initial tests of air and water and blood samples haven't revealed any possible cause. Channel African News, I'm Onelensinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, in short OSHA, says it has reached an agreement with the Ethiopian government to enter Makele, the capital of Tigray region, to deliver the urgently needed humanitarian supplies to more than 100,000 Eritrean refugees at four refugee camps following nearly five weeks of fighting between federal and regional forces. James Shimanula reports. According to Jan Zlak, spokesman of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, in short Ocha, the organization has officially been allowed by Ethiopian authorities to enter Mekele City, the capital of Tigray region. The question that arises is why the organization has up to now not entered Mekele. Lark provides the answer. There are still operational issues of a logistical nature, some of them of a security nature, that are being worked out so that we can proceed with the mission so everyone, of course, are working full speed to make that happen. As Lark spoke, Baba Baloch, spokesman for the United Nations Refugee Agency, announced that the agency is prepared to resume its full humanitarian activities in the Tigray region as soon as the situation allows following an agreement to restore access. UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, stands ready to resume its full humanitarian activities in the Tigray region as soon as the situation allows following an 
an agreement to restore access. In the Shire, in Tigray, UNICR staff in the town, together with our partners, have already distributed water, high-energy biscuits, clothes, mattresses, sleeping mats, and blankets to an estimated 5,000 internally displaced people. Turning to Tigrayans entering refugee camps in eastern Sudan, Balochi said. Inside neighboring Sudan, Ethiopian refugee arrivals continue, with the total number now have crossed 47,000. Welcoming the signing of an agreement to allow international aid organizations reach Tigray, Thompson Piri, spokesman for the World Food Program, had this to say. WFP's priority is to locate some of the 50,000 Eritrean refugees who, before the conflict, received food assistance in four camps in Tigray. It is possible, as Babaya said, that some may have fled by now in search of safety. It is unclear at this stage how much relief food is in WFP and government warehouses until assessment missions reach Tigray. Piri says before the fighting flared up between Tigray forces and Ethiopian troops, WFP supplied food to one million people in Tigray. Piri estimates that up to two million people in Tigray region may require food before the end of this year. Responding to concerns about the impact of the conflict on civilians, World Health Organization spokesman Tariq Yasarevik said... What we can expect is worsening of COVID-19 pandemic in the region, injuries, malnutrition, diseases such as malaria. That was World Health Organization spokesman Tariq Yasarevik, spokesman for the World Health Organization. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Ghana is today heading to the polls for the country's new leader with incumbent Nana Akufo-Addo facing off against rival and former president John Dramani Mahama. The two leading candidates wrapped up their campaigns over the weekend with Akufo-Addo delivering a Sunday evening televised address to the nation. It is the third time that the two are squaring off in a presidential election in the West African country. For the latest on the vote and uh, also its significance, Channel Africa spoke to Paul Osei Kufour, who is a member of Ghana's Coalition of Domestic Elections Observers, CODEO. Today's election is very significant because it comes with a lot of dynamics. Uh, you have a certain president in 2016 who, through a first-round victory, won the elections against an incumbent president. And this incumbent president in 2016, the president of John Dramani Mahama, is coming back again in 2020 to contest these elections. So both political parties are contesting their elections on their track record. In 2016, who was the candidate and still remains the candidate of the MTP, had never been in government before. This is the situation in 2020. He has been in government for four years. John Evans, uh, John Dramani Mahama, who is also the candidate of the NDC, has also been in government from 2012 to 2016. So both parties are campaigning on their track record. And this is where it makes it more, much more competitive. Every election in Ghana has been competitive, but looking at the candidates, the two candidates, one being a former president, and also let's, let me add that this is the first time we have a former president who was defeated in an election and has come back to contest an election again in Ghana. So the dynamics uh, are not the same compared to the previous elections, 
and that that brings a lot of substance and uh, make the contest more much more competitive results from previous elections have been very tight isn't it and the same outcome uh, some are saying is just as plausible this time around with a greater focus on social and economic demands in light of the coronavirus pandemic is this how you see the vote panning out in Ghana, if you look at the trajectory, most times a win for the opposition has gone through a runoff. If you look at 2008, it was a runoff. 2000, it was a runoff. It was only in 2015 that it wasn't a runoff. That was a one-touch victory for the MPP. And at that time, there's been a lot of complaints against the certain government. So there was some kind of a popular upheaval against the incumbent at that time. Fast forward to 2020. As I mentioned earlier in my introductory comment, that this was a situation where the MPP candidate in 2016 has never been in government before. So he could make all the promises. He could castigate all the, make all the castigation, cast all the aspersions against the incumbent in 2016. Then you fast forward in 2020, the MPP candidate, which is Anna Kufuado, is now in government. Similar scandals have come up. Issues that they, they raised against the opposition at that time, like issues of allegations of corruption, allegations of family, family and friends government. Similar issues have really manifested themselves within the, 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 the period 2016 to 2020. Are you expecting a big number in terms of people who will be turning out to vote. We did the special voting in, uh, on December 1st and the outcome was over 80%, the turnout. So if the turnout for the special voting is anything to go by, then we expect a much higher turnout in this election. Certainly will not reach the turnout for the special vote. The special voting was done for election officials, uh, EC officials, the security and other officials involved in the media as well who, who are involved in the conduct of elections today. So they did a special voting, and the turnout was quite much higher, above 80%. And so if you have to go by that turnout, then certainly it's something that is going to uh, increase compared to the previous elections. In an effort to ensure peace remains a priority before, uh, during and after the elections, President Akufo Addo and the head of the NDC, Mahama, signed the presidential elections peace pact on the 4th of December. But the security situation in the Volta region remains a hot potato, isn't it? People in the region are concerned following the deployment of troops into the region. Are these concerns justified in your view? Uh, in, in our view, we, we think that the security of the state must still continue uh, the traditional function of protecting peace, uh, maintaining safety and order must still continue. So if the security has any justification to deploy, I think they, 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 they should go ahead and deploy. What we are against is a deployment that will put fear and intimidation in voters and will restrict voters from coming up. And that's Paul Oseko for a member of Ghana's Coalition of Domestic Elections Observers, Kodeo, talking to Kumbelo Munjalele. The Democratic Republic of Congo's President, Felix Tshisekedi, has announced the end of the coalition between his political platform, the Cap for Change, and former President Joseph Kabila's Common Front for the Change, the FCC. The coalition has been ruling the country for the last two years. As he addressed the nation on Sunday, Chisikedi said this didn't allow him to implement the program he was elected for. Jean-Noel reports from Kinshasa. 
President Felix Tshisekedi's speech has followed the talks he conducted here last month. He said he has decided to end the coalition as most of people asked him to do so. Felix Tshisekedi. J'ai décidé le rejet de la coalition entre le Front commun. I have decided the end of the coalition between the Common Front for the Congo and the Cape for Change. A sad decision that follows two years' efforts to try and save the coalition. Two years indeed, but unfortunately, we didn't succeed to avoid a situation of ongoing crisis. The decision has divided the people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Some of the Congolese we have spoken to support Mr. President's decision. One of them is Hervé Diakese from the Congolese Debout Civil Movement. He believes the FCC cash coalition was not there for the DRC people's interests. They were mainly discussing about power, about leadership or key position in politics, administration, and even uh, in uh, state business, not necessarily about welfare of our people, development of the country, about many issues concerning stability, security, and uh, development. So it was obvious that this kind of management of our country was failing our state. It means like our people was desperately abandoned. That's why uh, everybody welcomed this decision. Since they start, they were not working, they were fighting. Since they start, nothing was working for population. Some other Congolese believe Felix Tshisekedi won't make it since his decision aims to get a majority into parliament and this is not really easy for him. One of the Kinshasa inhabitants who didn't want to be named said Mr. President has failed to work in coalition while he's at risk to face a cohabitation with former President Kabila's FCC, meaning he might be in trouble. Gonna get the majority? I'm questioning his decision. He didn't make it in coalition. Will he really be able in cohabitation where he won't have even a minister? He might have decided in a hurry. I know a politician can know he's failing, but he'll continue with speeches. Meanwhile, at the Lamuka opposition coalition under Martin Fayulu, the decision is being described as a dispute between two thieves fighting over the stolen goods. Jean-Noël Bamwise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Again. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah.
The extent of death by hunger and starvation in World War II rivals that of death in combat. By 1945, agriculture has been wrecked. Hundreds of millions uh, seek out a living on the equivalent of two potatoes a day. The Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, is born as an agency of the newly founded United Nations uh, United Nations. Spurred on by the U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's call to secure freedom from uh, from want, its mission is to help build a world of plenty. In the following report, Andre Vornik revisits the international context that led to FAO's creation and examines how the period since 1945 has reframed our understanding of humanity's most vital need. The sounds of Four Freedoms Park on Roosevelt Island in New York, across the East River from the FDR driveway and the United Nations. It's an uplifting piece of public landscaping, and it takes its name from a celebrated speech by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1941, a speech which went on to inspire the UN's founding principles. There was freedom of expression, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and... Freedom from want everywhere in the world. Fighting was raging in Europe, in Asia and North Africa. Still, the vision was being fleshed out. The freedom of want cherished by President Roosevelt would take shape as a resolve to deliver the world from hunger. And it would go on to become a specific mandate for a UN that had yet to rise from the debris of conflict. Here's FDR again at the UN Conference on Food and Agriculture in Hot Springs, Virginia in 1943. The primary responsibility lies with each nation for seeing that its own people have the food needed for health and life. Steps to this end are for national determination. But each nation can fully achieve its goal only if we all work together. Two years later, as the war ended, it was done. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, in short FAO, was born, very much thanks to a North American push, founded in Quebec City, then headquartered in Washington, D.C., before finally moving to Rome a few years later. This organization, in fact, reflects and embodies the world's understanding of food and agriculture over the last three-quarter centuries, and in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, a climate emergency and persistent conflict, it holds clues to how global thinking and acting about food may evolve over the next couple of decades. I'm now standing by the Circus Maximus in Rome, and a bit further up the road are the Baths of Caracalla. Bridging the space between these two ancient sites is what's known locally as the Palazzo Fao, the headquarters of FAO. Construction of this building, which is clad in white travertine, began just before the war. Italy was a colonial empire at the time, and this was supposed to host the Ministry for Italian Africa. After the war, democracy came back to Italy, the colonial empire was dismantled, the Republic was proclaimed, and in 1951, the Italian government invited FAO to move to Rome and take over this building. And the reason FAO came to Rome was in recognition of the fact that this country had, for several decades, hosted an international institute of agriculture, and indeed, 
was the first nation to recognize the power of agriculture as a tool of international cooperation and progress for the entire world. The emphasis at the beginning fell squarely on expanding agricultural production and productivity. And with good reason. It's hard for most of us today to imagine just how much the Second World War wrecked food and agriculture. Lizzie Collingham has researched the topic extensively. She's a British historian and author of The Taste of War. Lizzie, paint a picture for me of the world coming out of war uh, in 1945 and discovering the extent of hunger and, and suffering. I think uh, one point you make is that most people are confused. They have no idea how many people actually died of hunger and starvation and associated diseases as opposed to military deaths and so on. Yeah, I, mean, I think even if you just take very cautious estimates, it's about 19.5 million people are calculated as having died as a result of military combat during the conflict. At least as many, if not more. So probably about 20 million people died during the Second World War as a result of hunger, starvation and malnutrition, which is, I think, an absolutely devastating figure. So people in Europe were absolutely on the edge. There's a, there's a very moving description by an American cook who comes into Europe and um, describing how the, the people in it would queue up outside the canteens and go through the garbage looking for old discarded cabbage leaves and things like that. And it made him cry to see these people reduced to skin and bone. Europe was in a terrible state. The, the entire world was hungry at the end of the war. And we are in 1945 and the world suddenly wakes up to this and thinks we need to do something about it. Well, the thing about it is that what you, once you get to the end of the war, people suddenly expect from one day to the next that things will get better. But of course, they get much worse because then you've got to deal with the devastation. And so people have been sort of hanging on hope towards the end of the war. But the war left agriculture in the most appalling state because the men go off to fight. So in Russia, for example, the agricultural labor force was largely women, old men and children. Uh, you can compensate for a lack of men if you have machinery. But of course, industrial production shifts towards munitions and tanks and so on. They don't make machines for agriculture. Draft animals also get taken into the military. So the women in Russia were left on their own, yoking themselves to the plows to plow the fields to grow food. So Russia was in a terrible state. China, China is devastated. Something like 15 million Chinese died uh, in the Second World War. And that was Lizzie Collingham, British historian and author of The Taste of War, ending that report by FAO's Andre Vornik. A new report by the International Labour Organization, ILO, has found that monthly wages fell or grew more slowly in the first six months of 2020 as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic in two-thirds of countries for which official data was available and that the crisis is likely to inflict massive downward pressure on wages in the near future. The report shows that the wages of women and low-paid workers have been disproportionately affected by the crisis. Tlantla Matlangu reports. 
The Global Wage Report 2021 shows that while average wages in one-third of the countries that provided data appear to increase, this was largely as a result of substantial numbers of lower-paid workers losing their jobs and therefore skewing the average since they were no longer included in the data for wage earners. In countries where strong measures were taken to preserve employment, the effects of the crisis were felt primarily as falls in wages rather than massive job losses. The report further shows that not all workers have been equally affected by the crisis. It says the impact on women has been worse than on men. Estimate based on a sample of 28 European countries found that without wage subsidies, women would have lost 8.1% of their wages in the second quarter of 2020 compared to 5.4% for men. The crisis has also affected lower paid workers severely. Those in lower skilled occupations lost more working hours than higher paying managerial and professional jobs. Using data from a group of 28 European countries, the report shows that without temporary subsidies, the lowest paid 50% of the workers would have lost an estimated 17.3% of their wages. The report also looks at wage trends in 136 countries in the four years preceding the pandemic, and it found that global real wage growth fluctuated between 1.6 and 2.2%. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantlama Tlangu in Johannesburg. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Now it's time for your latest news headlines. Here's Onelin Sinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Ghanaians are voting in an election widely seen to be a close contest between the incumbent Nana Kufuado and former President John Mahama. Allies of former Congolese President Joseph Kabila have accused President Felix Tshisekedi of violating the constitution over his plan to form a new governing coalition. And United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has reached an agreement with the Ethiopian government to enter Mekele, the capital of Tigray region, to deliver the urgently needed humanitarian supplies. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment 
more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Hospital admissions in South Africa's Eastern Cape province are on the rise in some instances comparable to those during the first wave of infections. Both public and private sector hospitals are affected by the pandemic and that strain uh, and that strain on the hospital system is one of the most concerning aspects of a second wave. The private sector has a responsibility to do what it can to assist the strained healthcare sector and anything that can be done to relieve pressure on strained hospitals is a win all round. South Africans belonging to medical schemes that are administered by MedScheme are strongly encouraged to make use of the company's home-based care offering, referred to as Hospital at Home, or HAH, as an important action to help alleviate strain on hospitals. HAH is an alternative to general ward hospital admission. Dr. Samgeli saw Dube uh, would have been joining us on the line, but we are now joined by Dr. Nyati, the Managing Executive at MedScheme. Dr. Nyati, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Samora. Now, Doc, could you please tell us more about this hospital at home? How does it work? So, uh, typically what would happen is there are some patients who would ordinarily have been admitted into a hospital that, based on their, um, their clinical picture, we believe could be um, treated at home and we would typically send a nurse or a doctor depending uh, on the case uh, to do an assessment at home and see whether or not indeed the patient can be safely uh, treated at home and then we organize then everything that's required from taking bloods to getting meds to them to putting uh, giving oxygen if that's required And then there's a monitoring service, a 24-hour monitoring service that the treating doctor as well as a command center uh, that's manned by doctors and nurses then um, track the vital signs of the patient um, 24-hourly. And then you do check-ins, almost similar to what you would have had at a hospital, but it's done remotely or face-to-face depending on what's required. And uh, have you started these type of admissions? We have started these type of admissions. In fact, I had the uh, 
um, pleasure or displeasure, I don't know, of having one of my own family members go through the process. Um, and we've had more than um, more than 20 patients who've gone through um, hospital at home uh, in our space. All right. And is it easy to carry out these type of admissions? It is quite easy, uh, Samora. And we know we find that patients um, quite prefer it to be able to have um, care at home. Um, doctors are easily signed up on it. They can track their patients on either on their dev- uh, laptop or, or uh, computer or even mobile. And you just log in um, as the doctor. You're given um, secure login details, and then you can track all your patients. In fact, you get a list of all the patients that are allocated to you, and you can switch on any time and see how your patient's doing. And then because it's linked to a command center, um, if, if something is beeping and you as a doctor happen to not be logged in, um, the nurse or the doctor who's manning the command center 24 hours will call either the patient or yourself. And sometimes, you know, sometimes somebody will have to go in and just fix the equipment if they can't see the reading. It really is very easy. All that's required is a call and we authorize it and then we organize everything from there. All right. And uh, have you seen a high uptake on this type of admission? We have. It's slowly upticking. I mean, it's it's probably been greatest now in the Eastern Cape. There's been a lot of demand for hospital at home in the Eastern Cape, and I guess you can um, in PE specifically because um, really the hospitals there have been um, have been strained both in the public and the private sector. So we've had to decant some of the facilities, and so we've we've even sent some nurses and some doctors from um, Gauteng to go to. Um, the Eastern Cape to relieve some of the pressure. And we've got nurses um, that some of them are not doing hospital at home uh, per se because the patients aren't necessarily as sick to require 24-hour monitoring, but just sometimes it's just nurses going to check in. And so we've sent some nurses home just to make sure that patients are doing well. Um, so it's slow uh, because I suppose it's not been well known, but it's increased a lot in, um, in the Eastern Cape in the past two weeks. All right, Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for, for having me. Anytime, and we wish you all the best with uh, Hospital at Home. That is Dr. Nyati, Managing uh, Executive at MedScheme. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. One of South Africa's foremost tuberculosis researchers and a principal investigator at Helen Joseph's 
Hospital's Clinical HIV Research Unit, Dr. Francesca Conradi, has called for a renewed focus on TB testing in South Africa to help find new TB cases that went missing during the COVID-19 lockdown. TB testing, the mainstay of the country's TB program, took a severe knock during lockdown, which has left many South Africans with undiagnosed TB. The World Health Organization lists South Africa as a priority country given its high infection rates for TB, TB and uh, HIV co-infection and drug-resistant TB. Dr. Conradi elaborates. So during our hard lockdown in the first five weeks, I think people were afraid to leave their homes. And only the very sickest of people went to the clinic to test for TB. And we saw a dramatic drop of up to 50% in that first lockdown. As things have let up, people have begun to return to, to the clinic. We screen certain people for TB. So we screen everyone who's HIV infected. We ask them if they've got symptoms of TB, and if that screen is positive, we test them. And we do that at every single visit when we see an HIV-infected individual. We screen pregnant women, uh, and we screen basically anyone who comes to the clinic and tests. Obviously, if less people are coming to the clinics, we're doing less testing. TB diagnosis is made on a laboratory investigation. And if we're not uh, doing that investigation, we're not finding the cases. Doctor, why is it important that new TB cases that went missing during this period be found? The importance of finding TB is both for the individual and for the community. It's very similar in a lot of ways to COVID. If I know that an individual has got TB, I give them the correct treatment and they will almost always get better. So it's for their own individual health. But in addition, TB is a transmissible disease. And if people are wandering around in our communities with untreated TB, they will be infecting other individuals. And we're particularly worried about those who are at risk of poor outcomes. Those are children under the age of five, and HIV-infected people, particularly those not yet on antiretroviral therapy. Now, South Africa has a robust TB testing program. Do we know how many laboratory-confirmed TB cases there are this year compared to the same time last year? We don't have exact figures. We know that last year there were over 200,000. We're hoping that we will catch up and reach that number by the end of this year, but we don't, I don't have an exact number for how many we've done. We know that we're about 30% down on where we were last year with our testing and screening approach. What do you think the role of healthcare workers should be in finding these missing cases? So it's quite simple. Every single person that you see as a healthcare worker, you ask them four questions. Are you coughing? Is that cough of longer than two weeks duration if you're not HIV infected? Are you sweating at night? Are you losing weight? And do you have a fever? And if the answer to any of those four questions is yes, then send the patient's sputum off for a TB test. Um, and just to keep that in front and central of our mind, at the moment we know that COVID-19 is overtaking our thinking. But TB is still out there and we need to bear in mind that people can have COVID and or TB or TB on its own. How else, in your view, can the country catch up to find these cases? Well, I'm hoping this is a call to action both to uh, healthcare workers and people in the community, don't forget that TB is still out there. And if you do have a cough, don't be scared to go to clinic. The clinics are safe places to go. We've taken lots of precautions to separate our people so that COVID infection doesn't occur at clinics. If you think you've got TB, please go to the clinic. Get tested. There is treatment. We've got excellent treatment in South Africa.
And that was Dr. Francesca Conradi, a TB researcher and principal investigator at the Clinical HIV Research Unit at the Ellen Joseph Hospital in Johannesburg. Uh, she was talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. And now for your latest economics news, here's Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Samora. Governments in Africa lose about 25 billion U.S. dollars annually due to tax evasion. Multinationals transfer profits to offshore tax havens, while individuals engage in tax evasion through undeclared assets. This is according to data collated by Tax Justice Network, Public Services International and Global Alliance for Tax Justice. Over $1.2 billion is lost by Kenya, Ethiopia, Burundi, Tanzania, Uganda, South Sudan and Rwanda. The top five losers are Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, Angola and Sudan. An inaugural report released in the last week of November by Tax Justice Network entitled State of Tax Justice 2020 found that higher income countries were responsible for 98% of all the tax lost, while lower income countries were responsible for only 2%. Moody's rating agency has downgraded Namibia's long-term borrowing facilities to BA3, saying that expectations have not improved as it maintained the country's negative economic outlook. With the downgrade, the central bank has to appease investors with high interest rates as the country is deemed risky and could face repayment problems. According to Moody's, the increase in the country debt is driven by the primary deficit and interest costs. Interest costs are set to peak at around 6% of the gross domestic product. Moody's, however, have indicated that the country's large public pension fund provides at some level of confidence in the ability of the government to continue to meet its liabilities. Former Eskom Company Secretary Legal and Compliance Head Suzanne Will- Daniels says there was a rushed decision to conclude the optimum coal mine deal. Daniels, who is giving evidence at the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture, sitting in Johannesburg, South Africa, says she only became aware of the coal deal 
between Eskim and Gupta linked to Geta exploration in 2015. She's also testified that draft documents for the optimum coal deal were sent to a third party outside of Eskim and edited. In 2015, Tegeta was unlawfully awarded a coal supply contract for Majuba. Durban University of Technology and Vodacom have partnered on a project to upskill 300 young girls in coding and robotics. The program, dubbed Code Like a Girl, aims to encourage more girls to explore careers that require coding skills to help them get started in STEM fields. This comes as the National Department of Basic Education has prioritized addressing South Africa's critical skills gap, KwaZulu-Natal Education MEC Kwasi Mshengu. As you would know that uh, we are now in an era of the fourth industrial revolution where uh, technology, artificial intelligence, as well as uh, robotics have actually taken a center stage and they are defining all aspects of our of our human activity. We therefore thought it is important that um, at this stage we should be able to give exposure uh, to these realities to the young girls who are in deep rural areas so that when we entice them into following the STEM subjects or the STEM stream, uh, which is much relevant to the future prospects of uh, work opportunities in within this area of uh, the fourth industrial revolution. The European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, is reported to have given a downbeat assessment of trade talks with Britain. Briefing EU diplomats shortly before talks resumed with his British counterpart, Barnier said he could not guarantee that a deal would be struck. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, are expected to discuss the state of negotiations. If no deal is reached by the end of the year, the UK and EU will introduce tariffs and border checks on goods. Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney details the main sticking points in the negotiations. The two really difficult issues of the level playing field or fair competition and the governance around that and fishing still seem to be very, very problematic. There really was no progress made yesterday. That's our understanding. The U.S. dollar is trading at 378.14 Nigerian Naira, 10.86 Botswana Pula, 109.95 Kenyan Shilin and 21.01 Zambian Kwacha. One U.S. dollar is trading at 5.15 Brazilian Hail, 74.08 Russian Ruble, 73.64 Indian Rupee, 6.53 Chinese Yuan and at 15.18 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,860 and platinum at $1,033 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $48.67 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Netwich Money is up with your latest sport.
with the latest Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto N-E-T-O Chemani. From the Sports Desk, a very good afternoon. Starting off with boxing news. Floyd Mayweather announced on Sunday he is set for an exhibition a boxing match against a popular YouTube personality, Logan Paul, at an undetermined venue early next year. No details were released about the former boxing champion's latest exhibition other than it would be held on February the 20th. The 43-year-old Mayweather has not had a serious boxing match since fighting Andre Berto in 2015, the same year he battled the Filipino champion Manny Pacquiao. In 2017, Mayweather stopped mixed martial arts fighter Conor McGregor, who had never boxed professionally before. On to athletics news. The 2021 Wanda Diamond League series will include all disciplines that World Athletics had planned to remove from its top-tier program. Our Nairobi-based correspondent Francis Mudegi reports. East African favorites, the 3,000 meters triple chase and 5,000 meters will be reinstated as well as the triple jump, discus and the 200 meters. Other major changes include the Diamond League live broadcast returning to a two-hour duration, having previously been scheduled to last just 90 minutes, as well as the introduction of a new Best Performing Athletes Award for Outstanding Performers. In a statement, the Athletics Association said that the original decision to reduce the Diamond League disciplines from 32 to 24 in November 2019 was one of the priority issues for this association. On to motorsport. Federation of International Automobiles John Todd has given a stamp of approval for Kenya's preparations for the 2021 World Rally Championship Safari Rally. The FIA president was full of praises as he concluded a three-day trip to Kenya with a visit to the Safari Rally Service Pack in Naivasha. Todd, who also doubles up as the UN Special Envoy on Road Safety, used his trip to meet with President Uhuru Kenyatta. Todd took advantage of the opportunity to break ground on a new pavilion building which will be built at the Service Park in Naivasha in the Rift Valley. But it is combined to other commitments, and uh, clearly the commitment uh, which is dear to our organization and which is dear to any citizen around the world is improved road safety. And you know very well that the situation is not good as it should be. Other than the excitement brewed around the return of the 2021 World Rally Championship, Safari Rally expected to be hosted in Kenya after almost decades, the appointment of Sports Cabinet Secretary Amina Mohamed to the Board of Directors of the International Automobile Federation is a sign of good things to come, with more women now expected to get into the motorsport world. It has uh, actually been a really wonderful uh, signal that uh, uh, Jean Todd has sent uh, to the international community and to the world because uh, quite a number of his uh, elected officials now are actually uh, women, mm? uh, including the honorary members. Uh, there are many women, and I don't think that that has, be, has had been the case uh, in the past. Uh, you know, so, so it's wonderful that uh, he has begun a journey that ensures that there is inclusivity uh, in terms of just getting more women, uh, but also diversity into the into the uh, organisation. And finally, in football news, Rwanda's under-17 football team has been placed in Group B at the upcoming Sakafa tournament scheduled for December the 13th to the 28th in Kigali. 
Djibouti and Tanzania make up the rest of Group B, while Group A comprises Uganda, Ethiopia, Kenya and South Sudan. Rwanda will host the Sekafa Under-17 Cup at the Umuganda Stadium in Rubavu District and Huya Stadium in Huya District. The Junior Wasps entered a residential camp at Hilltop Hotel on December the 2nd with a provisional squad of 39 players, which is expected to be trimmed down this week. Channel Africa, with sports from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Right now, though, taking us to the top of the hour is Let There Be Light by Lira. We'll see you later.
if your world is a dark place tonight, then you can bring the light from right within your heart. So illuminate your life. 